We can't escape it. Even if you're disillusioned or you're just plain tired of it all and you want to ignore it, it's inevitable that you'll be confronted with this topic in our town. 2020, the presidential election, right? You can't avoid it. On the Democrat side, there's a vast field of candidates being whittled down as a jockey for the attention of Americans to convince us of who will be the best leader against our current president. They each have a unique vision for the country and how to get there. They're trying to convince Americans that they are the leaders capable of moving the nation forward. On the opposite side of the aisle, there are other Republicans hoping for a nomination to lead their party because they think they can lead more effectively than the current president. But there's controversy about that, too, because uh, the, the primaries and the caucuses, the voting mechanisms that the party uses to nominate their leaders, they're being challenged in some states, and that will prevent some of these leadership challengers from getting a chance to be on the Republican ticket. Leaders of the Republican Party are selling the decision as in the best interests of state taxpayers, seeing that these millions of dollars needed to run these primaries are unnecessary expenses. The point of all this is that leaders are everywhere, trying to make the best decisions. Whether it's in leadership of the nation or of a party, or maybe it's the leadership in our workplaces, in our schools, and in our homes. We are surrounded by examples of leaders who are trying to manage this balance between achieving a vision of a future for, of a future goal and, and the needs of the people they lead. One definition, the dictionary definition of leadership is motivating a group of people towards achieving a common goal. And there's an implication in this is that there's a vision, there's a picture that they're trying to move these people towards. In this living right side up in an upside down world series that we started last week, we're looking at how scripture informs the way that we live in a world that often seems to be on a different playing field when it comes to defining success. Last week, we looked at what it looks like to live a life of character from Daniel chapter 1. And in Daniel 2, we're going to look at two examples of leadership. And we want to see how God's vision of leadership shows us how to lead in a way that reflects his character, and the desire, his desire for the flourishing of all people. Why does this matter, though? I think most of us can think of leaders that we serve under. Our bosses, our teachers, maybe our parents, our elected officials. We are all under someone else's leadership, but we're also leaders over others. And you might not think of yourself as a leader, or you might not hold an official leader title, but if you volunteer you're a leader. If you're a parent, you're a leader. If, you're, if you teach or supervise others, like our volunteer teachers who are in training this morning before the service, you are a leader. You influence others. But particularly, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to be a leader in God's plan for redeeming creation. So the question is, what kind of leader will you be? As we Compare this worldly leadership with godly leadership in Daniel 2. We're going to look at what it means to be a toxic leader, a servant leader, and a winning leader. A toxic leader, a servant leader, and a winning leader. I have a dream. When you see or hear these words, who comes to mind? Yeah, probably Martin Luther King. 
His famous speech is seminal. The moment we hear or read those words, we're immediately brought to this uh, black and white image of him proclaiming in his trembling, soul-wrenching voice, right? That immediately brings you into this vision of his vision of the future. His dream becomes our dream because it's clear. And King not only leads his generation, but future generations, including ours, in this vision of a nation that embraces diversity and equality and freedom for all of God's children. Leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. are once in a generation or perhaps of a lifetime. They are the kinds of leaders that mobilize and inspire. But more likely than not, most of us are working with leaders who may not be quite so visionary or eloquent or inspiring. In fact, sometimes they can be quite toxic. Toxic leaders are usually easy to recognize. They're narcissistic, they're unhealthy, they're domineering. They don't like to listen to wise counsel unless it just happens to agree with what they already think. Toxic leaders rule and manipulate others with fear. Toxic leaders subvert systems of accountability and quickly identify scapegoats when things don't go their way. They use domination and control to get the results that they want. Toxic leaders create organizations that are, uh, revolve around them. Can you think of a toxic leader? You don't have to name it out. But we can at least name one person that we can talk about. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. We did just read about him, right? The king, this king also has a dream, but in his case, it's a troubling dream, and he's not sure what to do with it. In the ancient Near East, dreams were thought to be shadows of future events, and they were seen of a vision of sorts. In, this, in the case of a king, the king's dreams had significance for the whole country. So Nebuchadnezzar realized the importance of leading with vision, but he struggled to understand its meaning. So he invited counsel to provide guidance. He needs their help in interpreting the dream. But he makes an unusual request here. He doesn't tell them what the dream is. In verse 5 and 6, we're told that He's very firm in his decision. Don't tell me what uh, to, if you do not tell me what the dream is and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turn into piles of rubble. That's pretty extreme. Nebuchadnezzar wants his advisors to tell him his dream first and then interpret it for him. We're not sure why he does this though. Perhaps Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten the details of his dreams and he didn't want to admit it. I mean, I forget my dreams all the time. Or maybe that dream was so ominous that the interpretation of it could be used to challenge his authority. So he wanted to make sure this was divinely inspired by giving them this test before they would give the interpretation to make sure the interpretation wasn't just driven by a human agenda. In either case, Nebuchadnezzar, we see, like in toxic leaders, they lead with threats and rewards. He makes seemingly unreasonable requests of those he leads because at his core, he's quite insecure. In, verse, in later verses, he doubles down on his request after the advisors come and try to prompt it from him. It moves from just a request to being a threat and eventually escalates into an accusation. You have conspired against me, telling me wicked and misleading things. In verse 8 and 9, he's convinced that they're just trying to gain time and that they've already firmly decided what they're going to tell him. But he threatens them once again with death. 
Eventually, after his advisors politely try and wean some information about the dream from him, Nebuchadnezzar is just plain frustrated and decides to get rid of the whole lot. Every single advisor in the entire empire has been ex uh, put on the chopping block because they're not telling him what he wants. And the advisors respond, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks in verse 10. And so he goes on and issues a death decree for every single counselor in the empire. In Nebuchadnezzar, we see that toxic leadership not only fails to have a clear vision, but also leads and leads unreasonably with rewards and punishment, but is often deeply temperamental and insecure. Everyone is disposable the moment they don't support Nebuchadnezzar's whims and desires. Maybe you can think of someone like Nebuchadnezzar, a leader who demands something from you that you can't offer. How do we interact and relate to someone who leads in this manner? Many times, toxic leaders don't last long if they're in professional roles. But in Nebuchadnezzar's case, he's the ruler of the empire. He's the top dog, and his advisors face, his advisors face a no-win situation. They either tell him the dream or they die. Those are really hard choices. If you're honest with yourself, you, can, you might be able to see elements of Nebuchadnezzar's toxic leadership in yourself, trying to assert control and power to get what you want. Toxic leaders, leadership is one way to get results, but it dehumanizes people and destroys. Perhaps there's a better way. In comes Daniel. He finds out that his head is on the chopping block too because someone at the top has been making rash decisions, but he responds differently. He leads differently. In verses 14 and 16, we're told Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon. But Daniel comes to him and speaks with, to him with wisdom and tact. Arioch is the commander of the guard. He's known as the fixer. He's the one who does the dirty work for the king because the king has made a judgment, and so he's the one who has to act it out. But Daniel steps up. He stands in the gap. Daniel, though he is not in any sort of official leadership position, and he has no real designated authority. In fact, he doesn't even hear about what's going on until he's taken to go be executed. He functions as a leader on behalf of all the wise men who are about to be executed. The kind of leadership he exemplifies is servant leadership. It's wise and tactful. He seeks to understand and get all the facts as he requests to the, uh, to meet with the king in verse 14 and 15. In 17 and 18, we're told that he seeks the counsel and support of his friends. It's also tactful because he submits to this authority structure. He goes to Arioch and then he goes to Nebuchadnezzar. It's also very courageous because essentially he's about to die. But he puts himself out there before the one who is likely going to kill him on behalf of his friends but also all of the wise men. He protects others and those who are vulnerable with his very own life. He respectfully trusts those in authority above him, even though uh, he's respectfully truthful to those in authority above him. He doesn't withhold facts. He tells Nebuchadnezzar, as we find out in the dream later, that he is going to lose his empire. And he find, we find out that he does that later in the, in the book as well, when he tells another king of the same thing. He approaches Nebuchadnezzar and his uh, people in authority over him, uh, attempting to address Nebuchadnezzar's concerns. 
It's the dream and the anxiety that is causing him. We find that Daniel is also very prayerful. He invites his friends to come and pray together for the situation. And he recognizes ultimately that God is the one who holds all this information. And God is the one who ultimately cares for the people most. All of this points to a kind of leadership that isn't self-seeking. It isn't toxic. Instead, it's a kind of leadership that serves and lifts up others. It's sacrificial rather than demanding. As we compare these two leadership styles, I think Daniel's style is probably more attractive than Nebuchadnezzar's, right? But what makes Daniel's leadership different? What caused them to lead in such different manners? In our modern individualistic approach to leadership, this is what we typically do, right? You go and take these inventories of your leadership skills and resources, and you begin to form a trajectory for your career or for your life. You take what you have, whether it's people or skills or resources, and you make it work for you and the people that you influence. But Nebuchadnezzar's example shows us what happens when we don't have the ability or the resources. We use our power or authority, whatever it is that we have, and we begin to demand it from others. Parents are tempted to use this strategy all the time. That was supposed to be a moving gif, but when our kids have pushed every single button of ours, they're rolling on the ground, throwing a temper tantrum. You're dead tired because they've been sick and you haven't slept all night, and it just might be public shame or the fear of public shame or the threat of child protective services or the threat of going to jail that keeps us from actually acting out our inside voice. (laughs) Our inside voice desire to pick them up, lock them in a room forever, and ground them for life. If we're honest with ourselves, we're actually tempted to be like Nebuchadnezzar a little more frequently than we'd like to admit. Leading like Nebuchadnezzar is looking at what you have, recognizing that you don't have it sometimes, and doing what you want, and doing all things possible to get it. But Daniel shows us another path of leadership. One that sees the circumstances and steps in to serve the greater good. Frances Perkins was the first woman to serve in the New York State Industrial Commission. And she was also the first woman ever to hold a cabinet post in the executive branch of our government. She served under Roosevelt as a Secretary of Labor. Now, if you've driven past the U.S. Capitol building down the hill on Constitution, you've likely driven by the Department of Labor building named after her. Perkins championed many of the policies that became part of Roosevelt's New Deal. She established Social Security, which helped prevent, uh, protect the unemployed through welfare and pensions. And she also created the Fair Labor Standards Act that, employed, uh, that the, those who were employed had a minimum wage and labor and safety standards. The New York Times journalist, journalist David Brooks writes, reflects on Perkins' life in The Road to Character and how her influence as a leader was not developed merely by self-determination and self-fulfillment. Her life wasn't a response to this question, what do I want in life and how do I get it? Instead, she asked, what does life want from me? What are the circumstances calling me to do and how do I respond? Those are different sets of questions. 
But those kind of questions paired with a deep and prayerful trust in the living God move us towards being a servant leader and away from being a toxic leader. Frederick Buechner, the early 20th century pastor and author, once reflected on how our lives can reflect this quality of servant leadership. He invites us to ask ourselves this question. At what points do my talents and deep gladness meet the world's need? At what point do my talents, my resources, my skills, and my deep gladness, those that bring me deep joy, meet the world's deep need? When we begin asking ourselves these kinds of questions, we begin moving into a place of servant leadership. We ask a different set of questions. But there might be one question that still remains as we're going through all this. In a world where toxic leaders are the ones who seem to win and get all the attention, how do we become leaders like Daniel who help others win? A few weeks back, I met Chris Rowell. He's the leader of a bike group that climbs the hills of Anacostia in southeast Washington on Saturday mornings. This is a picture from that ride. He commented on leadership as we were chatting one evening, and I asked for his permission to share this quote. I thought it was a good quote on leadership. He said this, a leader isn't the first person to get up the hill. A real leader is one who helps everyone else get up to the hill successfully. I thought that was insightful. An example of what it means to be a servant leader. How do we become people who help others get to the top of the hill? Most of the time, we're just focused on whether we can even get to the top of a hill ourselves, right? Let alone having the resources to help those around us do the same. Now, we can look to another servant leader that comes along 600 years after Daniel. This other servant leader, like Daniel, leads with wisdom and sacrifice and courage, and in a way that helps others. In fact, this servant leader leads in a way that benefits the whole world. He helps others win by taking the loss himself. This servant leader stands in the gap when death comes beating on our doors, when we're unable to meet the demands of the one who rules. Like the wise men of Babylon who plead with Nebuchadnezzar, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. We find out just how true this is with this other servant leader. But there's this something different about the servant leader. We can't just look to him merely as an example or an inspiration for leadership. We find that when we look at this servant leader, he offers something else. When we recognize our limited resources, he offers up his own merit and his resource. It's a gift that none of us can ever earn on our own. This other servant leader is none other than Jesus. And he not only offers us his life to you see as an example. He doesn't just step up to protect the vulnerable where the ruler of the universe makes his perfect demands on our imperfect lives. It's what the Bible refers to as God's expectations of righteousness from an unrighteous people. Unlike Daniel, Jesus offers himself as a substitute for us. Jesus, we find, is the greater Daniel. When we cannot please God with our perfect record, Jesus offers us his perfect record. When we cannot answer the demands of those around us, he's the one who gives us 
the strength and the wisdom and the resource to meet them with his. That's what gives us ultimate security to lead as servants. You see, we don't win in life by following the example of Jesus' leadership. We win in life when we acknowledge how needy we are of Jesus' merit and of his leadership over our lives. And when we do so, we find that our lives begin to reflect the servant leadership that Jesus embodies. Eugene Peterson writes in the message translation of Philippians chapter 2. It's here on the screen before you. And he says this, When the time came that he, that's Jesus, set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far above beyond anyone or anything ever. So that all things created in heaven and earth, even those long ago and dead and buried, will worship and bow before this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the master of all to the glorious honor of God the Father. Jesus served the world obediently, even to death on the cross, so that God would lift him up and all created beings in heaven and earth will experience the same and bow in worship. I wonder, do you know Jesus in this way? Not simply as an example of good leadership, but as one who invites us to trust him completely and follow him as the leader of our lives. Because when we do so, we find that we have access to an infinite resource in the living God of the universe. We are loved and we are cared for by the creator of the universe far better than any other leader we can ever serve here on earth. Now, this doesn't mean that we will always get what we want, but we'll have what we need. And what we have can be used to meet the needs of those around us. May we all reflect the beauty and the sacrifice and the courage of the one servant leader who makes it all possible and so lead others into the same glorious joy and worship of the living God. Amen.